Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So what are we going to drop into? This week, our resident conference featured a couple of great journal updates on topics that come up at least once a shift, if not much more often than that. So I thought we could take a look at some of the literature and look at these articles. So the first is the POKER trial, which compares propofol and ketofol for procedural sedation. And the second is a study comparing different dosing options for Ketorolac. Sounds great. I love both of these topics. I love talking about procedural sedation. And that article on Ketorlac is just absolutely great. It's by one of our friends, Sergey Motov, right up the street in MIMO. So I love talking about that idea as well. So where do you want to start? You want to start with poker? Yeah, let's start with the poker trial. So this was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. It was a multi-center, randomized, double-blind trial of adult patients requiring deep sedation for an ED procedure. Now, when we perform procedural sedation, we have many options for medications we can use. These include ketamine and propofol. But of course, each medication comes with its own risks and side effect profiles. Propofol has amnestic qualities, but it is also associated with hypotension, loss of airway reflexes, and hypoventilation. Ketamine, on the other hand, maintains airway reflexes while providing analgesia, but it can be associated with tachycardia, hypertension, nausea and vomiting, and of course the dreaded emergence reaction, which can be often really pretty distressing to the patient. Now, ketofol is a one-to-one combination of ketamine and propofol, and it's been thought to be a compromise between the two. So you can have a lower incidence of adverse respiratory events, hypotension, vomiting, and emergence reactions. Now, this trial was to look at whether ketofol actually does have a lower occurrence of respiratory adverse events. So in the POKER trial, patients were randomized to receive either propofol or the one-to-one mixture of ketofol. The primary outcome they were looking for was a difference in the occurrence of respiratory adverse events. So things like oxygen desaturation, apnea, hypoventilation, laryngospasm, and aspiration. They found an occurrence of these events of 7% in the ketofol group and 9% in the propofol group, which gave an absolute difference of 2%, which was not statistically significantly different. Now, they also looked at two secondary outcomes, hypotension and patient satisfaction. They found the rate of hypotension to be 8% in the propofol group and 1% in the ketofol group for an absolute difference of 7%. This was statistically significant, but it seems that for most of the patients, this resolved spontaneously and only a few patients required a fluid bolus. So it's kind of hard to say how clinically significant this hypotension actually was. And then when it came to patient satisfaction, there was absolutely no difference at all. So you're saying that people liked both the ketamine-propofol combination as well as the propofol alone? Absolutely. That doesn't surprise it. me at all. They totally yeah. loved it. And they also loved it when they woke up and their shoulder was back in. Yeah, yeah. That's really what they love. So what does this actually mean for us? You know, when the idea of ketofol was first launched, it seemed like a great combination. It's like peanut butter and jelly or chocolate and peanut butter, Tom and Jerry, Ren and Stimpy, Walter and Jesse. Are you, are you going somewhere, Swami? Not really. I just kind (laughs) of wanted to talk about all of those things. The point is that Ketofol seemed like it would be great, but the studies, none of the studies really show much of a benefit over Propofol alone. Now, I've used it before, but I haven't seen much benefit over just ketamine or Propofol alone. That being said, I know some people who absolutely love it, but they typically don't mix it in one syringe. They're giving a bolus of ketamine up front and then titrating in the propofol as needed. So that might be the way that we actually see a benefit, but it's not the way it's typically studied. Regardless, I don't think there's anything in this study that I could use to push for the use of ketofol over something else. 
Yeah, sounds reasonable. So now on to our second journal update. This is a study again from Annals of Emergency Medicine called Comparison of Intravenous Ketorolac at Three Single-Dose Regimens for Treating Acute Pain in the Emergency Department, a Randomized Control Trial. We'll put the link in the show notes. We use Ketorolac a lot in the emergency department. It is often our go-to non-opiate analgesic. We give it so often, people often forget that it is actually a medication and it has side effects and risks. Side effects can include nausea, vomiting, GI bleeding, and renal insufficiency. The current FDA dosing for this medication is 30 milligrams IV and 60 milligrams IM for patients less than 65 years old. But the question is, do we really need to be using doses this high? Are there smaller doses that might be effective? Because if there are, maybe we can reduce some of the risks of the drug with these lower doses. And again, the lead author here from this study is Sergei Motov. And Sergei does a ton of research on pain management. And actually, he's probably taught me more about pain management than anyone that I've ever worked with. His team enrolled adult patients between 18 and 65 who came to the ED for acute flank, abdominal, musculoskeletal, or headache. The pain had to be greater than or equal to 5 out of 10 on the pain scale, and the attending physician had to think that Ketorolac was an appropriate analgesic to use. The patients were then randomized to receive either 10, 15, or 30 milligrams of Ketorolac IV. The primary outcome they were looking at was pain reduction at 30 minutes. Okay, so what did they find? In the group that received 10 milligrams, the average pain score was reduced from 7.7 to 5.2, a difference of 2.5. For the group receiving 15 milligrams, the average pain score was reduced from 7.5 to 5.1, a difference of 2.4. And for the group receiving 30 milligrams, the pain score was reduced from 7.8 to 4.8, a difference of 3.0. So to summarize, because that's a lot of numbers, the difference in pain score was 2.5, 2.4, and 3.0. This came out to mean that there was really no statistically significant difference in pain reduction at 30 minutes between any of the three different dosing groups. They also looked at a couple of secondary outcomes. They looked at the rate that subjects experienced adverse events, and there was no difference between any of the groups. Things like dizziness and nausea were equal across the three groups as well. And then they also looked at the need for rescue analgesia and found that that wasn't different between the groups either. So none of the secondary outcomes were different between groups. Now, Swami, I know you have strong feelings about Ketorolac. So why don't you tell us what the take home from the study would be? Yeah, I have some strong feelings. Actually, I spoke with Sergey earlier today about his article, and he had some really good thoughts about it, too. So while this isn't the biggest study in the world and it's not perfect, I think it's pretty good evidence to say that there is an analgesic ceiling for Ketorolac and it's far below the dose that we've been giving. There's really no evidence defending the higher dose of Ketorolac and it's odd that the standard oral dose is 10 or 20 milligrams, but that the IV and parenteral dosing IM is much higher, 30 and 60. This doesn't make any sense. I mean, think about another analgesic. That works that way. The oral dose is lower than the IV dose. It's usually exactly the opposite. And if you look back at all the old literature on this drug, it was never shown that 30 or 60 was necessary in patients with acute pain. Now, the study wasn't large enough to show whether you'd see increased side effects, but that's pretty typical with these studies. You need very large groups to find those rare occurrences of bad side effects. That being said, there is no reason to take the risk of a higher dose when there's no benefit. Now, I had already switched over to lower doses of Ketorolac. I was only using 15 milligrams, but after this, I'm all the way down to 10. 
Now, this was for IV dosing, right? Do you think the ceiling effect is the same for IM dosing? I remember for some reason being taught as an intern to use one dose for IV and then the higher dose for IM. Yeah, it's definitely what we were all taught. 30 IV, 60 IM. But I don't think that really makes much of a difference. The truth is, again, talking to Sergey about this, he says, you know, don't give it IM. IM has variable absorption. It has a delayed onset of action. If you're giving it IM, just try and give it PO. And if the patient can't take PO, just give it IV. So again, my standard is if I want to use an NSAID, I give it orally. If the patient can't tolerate PO, then I give it IV. So that wraps up both of these studies for us. But Jenny, how about giving us some take-home points? Sure. Let's just review the two studies. First, the POKER trial examined the difference between propofol and ketofol when it comes to adverse respiratory events. They found no significant difference between the two groups. Given that you might have some increased risk of medication errors when you're trying to use two medications instead of one, you just may want to avoid the mixture for now. Second, ketorolac has an analgesic ceiling effect lower than many of us thought. When comparing IV doses of 10, 15, and 30 milligrams, they found no difference in analgesic effect. Given the risks of side effects may increase with higher doses, you may want to stick to the lower dose of just 10 milligrams. Great take-home points and a nice summary of these two articles that, like you said, affect our management almost on a daily basis. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net, where we've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore em. Thanks, and see you all next week.